Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Clash. Ah, saviour of the podcast. <laughs> oh, yes. We have really kicked things up a level. <laughs> Brilliant, sir. For the second pod in a row. <laughs> Bravo. Oh, and I like the fact that, I don't know if, if um, the listeners will have picked that up, a massive firework has just exploded. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, you, I sir. didn't hear that, so... <laughs> Oh, excellent stuff. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I am absolutely great. Apart from the fact that it sounds like the British military are firing uh, artillery at Scallies. So, Kev, we are completing the first clash in our Seattle grunge visit. So, last time I did 10 by Pearl Jam. What little-known uh, compilation are you taking us through today? So, yes, um, as we have trailed in, in our previous pod, it will be the very little-known uh, Nevermind by Nirvana. Boom. Boom. Cannot Boom. wait. And, again, I still don't know how I'm coming down on these two albums. No, I still don't know. I've got an I- I've got more of an idea, but we'll see, we'll see where we get to. We'll see where we get to in a bit. However, Video Killed the Radio Star... Your pick. Indeed, it's my pick this week. So we have previously had Radiohead on here. And they are, as we've discussed before, they are a band with a great video history. Yes. So the of their wide catalogue of brilliant videos, I decided to uh, pick one of their more recent ones. So it's the video to Burn the Witch from the album A Moonshaped Pool. And basically, it's Trumpton meets the Wicker Man. It is Trumpton meets the Wicker Man, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way of describing it. So, I have a, an interesting little tidbit around that. So, according to the son-in-law of the Trumpton creator, Gordon Murray, the family was not asked permission to use this animation style for the video, mm-hmm. and they saw the video as a, quote, tarnishing of the brand. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why they thought that. <laughs> it's it is Trump to meet the Wicker Man. Although in this version, uh, Edward Woodward escapes at the end. Yeah, which is slightly disappointing. But <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask a question, Kev? Bear in mind when we were supposed to record this initially. Why did you choose "Burn the Witch" by Radiohead as your choice of video? So I genuinely, like, I genuinely didn't have in mind anyone particular. Um, okay. So it was nothing to do with um, the at the time very much clinging on by their fingernails, Prime Minister. Fair um, enough. It it was it was just genuinely like I'd listened to a Moonshade Pool and I remember that I'd really enjoyed the video. Yeah, it's a really good video. It takes you back to, to childhood watching Trumpton and Windy Miller and, 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 and all that. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I'm hoping that another contemporary band decides to do, like, I don't know, a version of Pan's Labyrinth with Charlton and the Wheelies. 
attack attack the block with Jamie uh, and his magic torch to attack the block. Uh, do you know what I was going to go? Will of the Wisp. That's, that's it's really sinister. That <laughs> Kenneth Williams in the Nick Frost role in Attack the Block. Yes. No, it's, it's too scary. I don't want that. <laughs> Good video. Well in. Yeah. So what we didn't say is it's right in our wheelhouse, a music video by a band we both like, which reminisces children's television <laughs> from back in the way. day. <laughs> in a dark way. Exactly. Very much in our wheelhouse. So a good choice, sir. Well done. As ever, we will indeed share the link to that video so you can enjoy it yourselves. And just before we get into our current album, it's also my duty to bring us Album of the Pod. It is indeed. What is your pick for Album of the Pod? So my pick for Album of the Pod, I have been listening to loads of different things, but um, I've come back to my original choice, which was the brand new album by a band that we're both we both really like. They should be much bigger, but unfortunately they're not. It's Wilderness of Mirrors by the Black Angels very much returning to the sound of their first album, uh, which is called Passover, which is an absolute belter. It is. If you like Psychedelia, um, well, the the name of the band themselves are taken from a Velvet Underground song. So, you know, <laughs> Indeed, that that's the kind of the kind of thing that we're we're um, dealing with here. They're great if you love a bit of psychedelia, you love swirling guitars, wistful vocals, and yeah. uh, meanderings. It's it's great. So yeah, check it out. Black Angels are great. I haven't heard. What's the album called, I'm afraid? It's called Wilderness of Mirrors. So I haven't heard Wilderness of Mirrors yet, so I will definitely go and listen to it. Big fan of Black Angels, as Kev said. Passover, their first album, is a fantastic album to be driving through the American New Mexico desert to. You know, and, and you know, it's perfect sound for that. It also perfectly, uh, it's perfectly acceptable doing, uh, going over that, the dead hilly bit on the M62. <laughs> With the farm in the middle. Uh, about which Fool on the Hill was not written, despite <laughs> Although it should everyone's have been. popular belief. Yes, it should have been. Uh, great stuff. Black Angels, good band. We'll definitely go and check that album out. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, so I shall start leading us through... Um, never mind. Never mind. So, the follow-up to their debut album, Bleach. Um, so, they started recording it in early 1990 and was initially tentatively titled Sheep. Sheeple. Sheeple. <laughs> yeah, um, no link with shell suit wearing conspiracy bellend uh, David Icke. <laughs> Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> <laughs> so at the suggestion of Sub Pop head Bruce Pavitt, Nirvana selected future garbage uh, member Butch Vig as producer, as they particularly enjoyed his work uh, with Killdozer, uh, nothing to do with killing Dozer from Fraggle Rock. Or The Matrix. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they'd recorded some stuff early April 1990, completed most of the basic uh, arrangements, but Kurt was still working on the lyrics and the band were a bit unsure of what they wanted to record. Ultimately, eight of these songs from this initial uh, session in 1990 appeared on uh, Nevermind. So Breed was originally known as Emodium. (laughs) Emodium? Yes. As in the, I've got the shits. I'm guessing so. (laughs) Well, 
there you go. I'd, I'd love to know how he was going to fit that into the lyrics. Uh, Dive later releases the B-side to Silver, uh, Sliver, sorry. In Bloom, Pay to Play, later renamed Stay Away. Sappy, Lithium, Here She Comes Now, which was included on a Velvet Underground tribute album called Heaven and Hell, Volume 1, and Polly. So they left the recordings with Vig to start mixing and everything like that, and the band played a local show. Um, Kurt strained his voice, which forced them to end recording. And then a couple of days later, they then travel to Milwaukee. <laughs> which is Algonquin for the good land. <laughs> Um, to begin an extensive uh, Midwest and East Coast tour of 24 shows in 39 days. Fuck me, that is a schedule. Yes, it is. It's James Brown-esque. <laughs> so immediately after this tour, the drummer Chad Channing leaves the band. Noted incel. <laughs> <laughs> With apologies to Chad Channing and all his family. I've no idea if he's an incel. It's a very incel name, though. So they had lost their drummer. It put a little kibosh on further recording, but um, in the in the um, hiatus, Kurt uh, and Chris Novoselic go to see uh, the hardcore punk band Scream, and were very impressed by their drummer Dave Grohl. Who? More to come later. <laughs> when they unexpectedly disbanded, Grohl uh, contacted Novoselic, travelled to Seattle, and was invited to join the band. Uh, Chris Novoselic said, in retrospect, that with Grohl. Everything fell into place. Yeah. Now, in the meantime, their label, Sub Pop, was having some financial problems. So with rumours that, that Sub Pop was about to be bought out by a major, Nirvana went, fuck this for the game of soldiers. Let's cut out the middleman and sign to a major ourselves. So they used um, the recordings as essentially a demo tape to shop for a new label. And within a few we- few weeks, there was quite the buzz around them. A number of major labels caught them, and uh, Nirvana signed with Geffen, like a sort of subsidiary of Geffen, mm-hmm. uh, based on the recommendation of Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. Oh, there you go. As it, what? So Kim Gordon recommended Nirvana sign with David Geffen, or she recommended, she recommended David Geffen, Geffen sign Nirvana? Nirvana, yeah. yeah. After Nirvana signed, uh, a number of producers were suggested, including Bob Mould. Huh. Yeah, I didn't know that at all until no, I started no, no. looking into it. So, so, sorry to interrupt. This is, and, and I am fully aware that I'm opening myself up to a deluge of anger and criticism and vitriol from any hardcore Nirvana fans who are listening to this podcast. It's always kind of been my problem with the flower-sniffing, kitty-petting, baby-kissing, corporate rock whores, ironic Nirvana t-shirt thing. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're signed to Geffen. Yeah, it, you were hardly with Factory. Exactly. Anyway, sorry. No, no, it's a, it's a fair point to make. So, but Chris Novoselic said the band had been nervous about recording under a major label, and a, a number of the producers suggested by Geffen uh, wanted percentage points so the band held out for Butch Vig, um, with whom they felt comfortable collaborating. And as history would go on to say, and as we'll come on to talk about, a very wise choice. Well, we will very much come on to talk about that. So with a band with a budget of 65 grand, the band recorded Nevermind at Sound City Studios in California. 
and to earn gas money to get to Los Angeles. This is this is the brilliant sort of indie nature of what what they were doing at this time. They played a show where they performed "Smells Like Teen Spirit" for the first time. The band sent Vig rehearsal tapes prior to sessions that featured songs previously recorded in that session in those sessions in 1990, plus the new songs, including "Smells Like Teen Spirit" and "Come As You Are." Not bad ones to. I think no. Butch Vig probably went. Yeah, I, we might include that on the album. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so they arrived in California, spent a few days rehearsing and working on the arrangements. The only recording carried over from the Smart Studio sessions was Polly, which included Channing's cymbal crashes. So um, Novoselic and Grohl finished their tracks in days, whereas Cobain worked longer on guitar overdubs, vocals and lyrics. He sometimes finished lyrics minutes before recording. Butchvig recalls that Kurt was often reluctant to record overdubs, but was persuaded to double-track his vocals when he was told that John Lennon did it. Absolutely right. Though the sessions generally went well, uh, Butchvig said Kurt would become difficult at times. He'd be great for an hour, and then he'd sit in a corner and say nothing for an hour. Which seems very unlike Kurt Cobain. Well, indeed. Now, whilst the fact that they really, really liked um, Butchvig and fought for him, Vig and the band were unhappy with the initial mixes and decided to bring in someone else to oversee him. So right. a, a list of different options were provided and they chose um, Andy Wallace, who had co-produced Slayer's 1990 album, uh, Seasons in the Abyss. And the reason they chose it is because those Slayer records were so heavy, as Chris Novoselic uh, recalled. So that, to me, is almost reminiscent of, of when Metallica when they were recording their self-titled The Black Album, railing against the, as we've spoke about the other week, the 80s hair metal Motley Crue, recruited Rob Rock, who was Motley Crue's producer, to produce that Black Album. It's like, to shift a needle, so to speak, we actually need to dabble a little bit in what our enemies are doing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's like, because... It, Nirvana and Slayer are not obvious bedfellows, let's say. No, not at all. Wallace's mixes most notably altered the drum and guitar sounds. According to Wallace and Vig, the band loved the results. However, they criticised it after the album was released. Steve Albini, who um, engineered in, in Utero, uh, said Vig's mix, initial mix sounded maybe 200 times more ass-kicking than the final version of Nevermind that Nirvana referred to it whilst working on in Utero. So, Kurt... <laughs> Kurt's description of what he wanted Nevermind to sound like was like the knack and the Bay City Rollers getting molested by Black Flag and Black Sabbath. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he could have just said the Pixies. It would have been a lot easier to say. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that. <laughs> well, yeah, because like, so Dave Grohl said the approach to having quiet verses to loud choruses originated during a four-month period uh, prior to the recording of the album when the band would experiment with re- extreme dynamics during regular jam sessions or listen to the Pixies. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Neil Young. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the tentative title, Sheep, was something Cobain created as an inside joke directed towards the people um, he expected to buy the album, Sheeple. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a fake advertisement for sheep in his journal that read because you want to not because everyone else is Novoselic said the inspiration for the title was the band's cynicism about the public's reaction to operation desert Sh- desert storm so it really is wake up sheeple yes um 
But as the recording ending, uh, Kurt grew tired of the title and suggested Novoselic that the name be the album be named Nevermind. Uh, Kurt liked the title because it was a metaphor for his attitude on life, and because it was it was grammatically incorrect. Okay, fine. Yeah. So that's all I have on the uh, background. Brilliant. Okay, I have nothing to add. Uh, very, uh, I've learned quite a lot there, I have to say. Which is unusual from my uh, background stuff. Thank you, Wikipedia. Sorry, <laughs> thank you, Kevin. <laughs> yes, but I carefully curated it from Wikipedia. <laughs> Citation needed. <laughs> Control C. Uh, <laughs> so, how did you first come across this album? I'm not going to sit here and say that I listened to Nevermind when it first came out in 1991 because I was 10. But what I will say is that everyone was familiar with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm -hmm. My first memory probably of Nirvana was when, and we've talked about this show before, when they were on Top of the Pops doing Smells Like Teen Spirit and, and Kurt Cobain sort of did it in a sort of laconic lounge singer style and, and chewed the microphone quite literally. Remember that vividly. So I've been familiar with Nirvana ever since Nevermind came out. I think I first heard the album as a whole was probably around 94, again, when I was starting to get much more into what was going on at the time. In Utero came out in 93, 94, so anyway, whenever it came out. And heard that, obviously listened to Nevermind. So yeah, it was it was not long after it came out, but two or three years after it came out when I first heard the album. How about you? I mean, very similar to you. So I, I wouldn't dream to say that I heard it straight on release or anything like that because I was also 10. But through a combination of, of my older sister and uh, when, once we finally got Sky and had access to MTV and, you know, stuff like that, that every, like once, once I was at, at secondary school and like you were 12, 13, yeah. like... Everyone had this album. Yeah. You couldn't escape it. Nope, quite so. Okay, artwork. Okay, so little known. So it shows a naked baby boy swimming underwater with a dollar bill on a fish hook out of his reach. According to Kirk Cobain, he conceived the idea whilst watching a television program on water births. He mentioned it to Geffen's art director, Robert Fisher, who found some stock footage of underwater births, but they were too graphic for the record company to use. Furthermore, the stock uh, house that controlled the photo of a swimming baby that they chose wanted seven and a half grand a year for its use. So instead, Fisher sent a photographer to a pool for babies to take pictures. Not all dodgy. <laughs> Five shots resulted, and the band settled on the image of four-month-old Spencer Eldon the son of a friend of the photographer. Geffen were concerned that the infant's penis visible in the photo would cause offence and prepared an alternate cover without it. They relented when Cobain said the only compromise he would accept would be a sticker covering the penis reading, if you're offended by this, you must be a closet paedophile. <laughs> Brilliant. And of course, speaking about Spencer Eldon... I was going to say, uh, of whom nothing was ever heard again, <laughs> and grew up to be an entirely reasonable human being. So, in August 2021, he filed a lawsuit against Weddell, uh, Kurt Cobain's estate, Grohl and Novoselic, claiming that the use of, it, of his likeness on the album cover was made without his consent or that of his legal guardians, that it violated federal child pornography statutes, and that it resulted in lifelong damages. 
Eldon said that by refusing to censor the artwork with a sticker, Nirvana had failed to protect him from child sexual exploitation. The lawsuit also stated that Cobain chose the image depicting Spencer, like a sex worker, grabbing for a dollar bill that is positioned dangling from a fish hook in front of his nude body with his penis explicitly displayed. Well, he shouldn't have been swimming naked chasing a dollar bill then, should he? <laughs> so it was defended, basically saying Eldon had spent three decades profiting from his celebrity as a self-anointed Nirvana baby, having recreated the artwork several times and that he had the album title tattooed on his chest. They argued that the cover instead evokes themes of greed, innocence, and the motive of the cherub in Western art. I mean, that's a classy... <laughs> that's a classy way in which to use the image of a naked child. <laughs> so the lawsuit was dismissed on the 3rd of January 2022. Eldon then refiled again, uh, amending the original suit by removing charges of child sex trafficking, whilst arguing it was child pornography. On the 2nd of September this year, a judge ruled against him, saying he'd waited too long to file the suit and cited a 10-year statute of limitations from the date the plaintiff became an adult at age 18. And any further filings have now been blocked by that judge, although Spencer says he is going to appeal. Okay, fine. He is obviously entitled to pursue all legal legal avenues available to him. But his his case is ridiculous. In the opinion of one of the contributors to this podcast, and also the other one, (laughs) his case is ridiculous. Yes, blurt. Proof that lawyers will take your money for any old shite. Absolutely. And perhaps if you hadn't spent 30 years saying, I'm the Nirvana baby, here's the album cover tattooed on my chest, he might have had more of a case. But um, who am I to speculate about ongoing legal proceedings? Okay, shall we... Get right into it. Yes, let's. So, we open with, again, very little-known song, Smells Like Teen Spirit. So, Kurt said that when he sat down to pen the track, he was trying to write the ultimate pop song. So, the the quote um, from Kurt to the Rolling Stone was, his main influence had been the Pixies. <laughs> well, I would never have guessed it, Kevin. I connected with that band so heavily. We used their sense of dynamics being soft and quiet and then loud and hard. Indeed, Chris Novoselic worried that the song was too Pixies-ish, telling Kurt, people are really going to nail us for it. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. I wonder, do you think Frank Black has a deep-seated yet unspoken loathing of Kurt Cobain? I mean, Frank Black has a loathing of pretty much everyone. All of human existence, yes, that's (laughs) fair. (laughs) So uh, Butch Vig remembers uh, the recording of it. So they do. They they come over to uh, California to to do a rehearsal, and he sent Butch Vig a cassette of the demo a week ahead of the sessions. It was a boombox recording of a rehearsal. And Kurt introduced him by saying, hey, Butch, we've got some new songs for you. And we also got Dave Grohl. He's the best drummer in the world. They then clicked into Teen Spirit with the scratchy guitar at the start. It was so fucking distorted, I could barely hear anything. But underneath the fuzz, I could hear hello, hello, melodies and chord structure. And even though the recording was terrible, I was super excited. Boom. I mean, if you talk about opening an album, if you talk about setting your stall out, fuck me. It's an assault. It is an assault. It's up there with Sergeant Pepper, with Enter Sandman, etc., etc., with just like the all-time classic opening tracks to an album. It's fucking huge. I mean, okay, as I as I said a couple of weeks ago, let's talk about double tracking, shall mm-hmm. we? 
double track guitars, double track vocals. You've even got double track drums in there. So as you said, the technique wasn't new. George Martin did it with John Lennon's voice. Uh, as did Phil Spector when, when he was producing Imagine, etc. And that greatly enhanced the sound that was being created then. And, and, and then Butch Vig just says, okay, let's take that and let's just fucking do it to the power of infinity, shall mm-hmm. we? Let's just fucking double track the double tracks, <laughs> almost. It's monolithic, Well, I mean, this sound. So Butch Vig says, you know, I want you to double track the guitars and vocals to make this really jump out the speakers. And it does, because that double tracking, everything, like, I think one of the things that never really gets talked about enough uh, with a Nirvana, I suppose is because he's he's slightly the, for want of a better phrase, the forgotten one, is Chris Novoselic's bass work. Yes, indeed. We'll, and there's a, there are later tracks where I'm very much going to say the same thing. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's so it's so fucking hooky this song. Well, it's 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 four chords all the way through. Four chords and the truth. <laughs> Indeed, it, it's so the the beauty of this song is the simplicity mm-hmm. because even the guitar riff is two notes. Bow bow. But you know what it is. Yeah. You know what it is. It's not about complexity. It's not about intricacy. That's not to criticise any of those things. Look, you know, he he was very honest. He wanted to write the ultimate pop song, but it's got a pop sensibility about it, and that's why it's so popular. 100%. Absolutely, it does. It's magnificent. I would say it is evocative of the grunge scene, as common people is, of Britpop. Very much so. It it is it it is yeah. It's the flag bearer for yes for the for the scene. Definitely. Um, am I right that the so obviously Teen Spirit was an aftershave, wasn't it? Um, uh, I think it was a deo like a women's deodorant. Uh, oh, okay, fine. Sorry. Am I right that the title was taken from some graffiti on someone's bedroom wall at a party? Or yes. Something? So um, it was a friend, a friend of Kurt Cobain, Kathleen Hanna, who fronted Bikini Kill, fueled by a bottle of Canadian Club whiskey. Uh, they decided to do a little public service and graffitied the exterior of a teen pregnancy centre which had just opened in town. It was in fact a front for a right-wing operation telling teenage girls they'd go to hell if they had abortions. She wrote, fake abortion clinic, everyone on the walls, while Kurt added in six-foot-high red letters, God is gay. Mission accomplished, <laughs> they continued drinking and ended up at Kurt's apartment where Kathleen scrawled lots of graffiti on his walls, including the, word, the words, Kurt smells like teen spirit, a deodorant brand. Kurt called me up go. six months later. He said, hey, do you remember that night? There's a thing you wrote on my wall. It's actually quite cool, and I want to use it. There you go. Okay. Uh, it's great. I mean, everyone knows it smells like Team Spirit. So, yeah, awesome. Great start. Should we move on? Yeah. Okay, so we, we go on to In Bloom. One of the songs that um, had been started work on for the mooted and then cancelled second sub-pop album which was essentially the dry run for Nevermind. When they returned to the track for the sessions at the Sound City Studios, it was the first song they worked on for the album, basically because Butch Fig knew it. 
from those sessions and so yeah. had more of a a feel for familiarity it. with it yeah. yeah but what completely changed the sound was dave Grohl's drumming because it was very different from chad channing's what's described as a grungy rumble can we just talk about the name chad channing i mean you've already said that it's insultastic <laughs> so i mean what else are we saying is, is it a real name apparently it sounds like the baddie in a stan lee comic <laughs> <laughs> The rules so hackney that even Stan Lee would blush. It's just, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep coming back to that name, Chad Channing. That's not the name of a drummer in a grunge band. It might be the name of the drummer in the California Dreamers, Surf Dudes with Attitude. Or the California Raisins. <laughs> uh, this song is offensive to both Christians and prunes. <laughs> Where were we going? Um, Sorry. So one of the things that the um, Nirvana uh, biographer Michael Azarad talks about is that Dave Grohl's drumming was very different from your man. <laughs> <laughs> but he also slightly struggled with singing initially because he wasn't used to it. So it's said um, by Michael Azarad, um, he had trouble hitting those stratospheric notes, but if he'd blow a take, he'd just take a drag on his cigarette and try again. Many takes later, Vig got what he wanted. I mean, yeah, Dave Grohl's drumming. So I, 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 I've heard the what is now called the alternate version, recorded with Chad Channing, Stockard's lad, <laughs> <laughs> and it's nowhere near as good because it's not got Dave Grohl on the drums. No, it's not. It's not just Dave Grohl. The production and engineering again. It's just it continues that sonic missile that is just. It's just. Epic. But the f- drum fills in the chorus, the way they are played, the speed at which they are played, mm-hmm. and not not but not just the speed. You can tell the fury with which he's smacking those skins. It's just incredible. Yeah, it's bass lines brilliant, Kurt's voice sounds great. It's just an amazing song. And the band are on fire. It's I love everything about In Blue. Mm-hmm. So what you were saying about Kurt's vocal, like lightning in a bottle. Yeah. It's brilliant. The fullness of the sound, that guitar solo, really discordant, really jarring, but fucking hell, it works perfectly. God, I adore this song. It, it's amazing. Um, the only other thing I'm, uh, I'd like to add before we move on, so... It is said that the song is a thinly disguised portrait of Kurt's friend and drug buddy, Dylan Carlson, who so described as the gun-loving noiser behind drone metal pioneers Earth, who later served as Kurt's best man and, tragically, bought him the shotgun. We'll move on. Okay. Come as you are. Do I have to? (laughs) Uh, I mean... (sighs) Christ. So apparently the um the song for it um and the guitar riff were inspired by 80s a 1984 single by Killing Joke. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Um may I interject? Yeah, sure. This song is our generation smoke on the water. By which I mean fucking everyone learning to play guitar in the mid-90s, would play 
the riff from Come As You Are endlessly, endlessly, often badly. And I have to say, Kev, I became so utterly sick of it that for years I could not listen to this song. Until Wonderwall came along and um, <laughs> ruined many a party with an acoustic guitar. It's the same thing. It's the fucking same thing. It is. I'm really sorry, guys. Again, at least I'm not slagging off a Zack Snyder film, but I feel like I'm swimming very close to that tide. If you know what I mean? I can't like this song because of that reason. I'm really sorry. I can't. Okay. So I'm going to say some positive things about it. I know exactly where you're coming from. Um, it's got a great atmospheric opening. Kurt's voice is full of pathos and angst. It's brilliantly performed, and in terms of a song, it's absolutely perfect. I understand exactly where you're coming from in that it has been murdered for you. Yes, it has. But that that is not the fault of the song. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I, I would say I think there are much better songs on this album. But that is not to say this is a bad song. But I always try to be objective in the way I talk about songs. I just can't on this one. I'm really sorry. It's been fucking ruined for me. And so you there know, you go. That's fair enough. So the the video for the song, the thing that you may not necessarily have picked up is that Dave Dave Grohl remembers that it was shot two days before the group left for an Australian tour, whilst Kurt was attempting to kick heroin. And they avoided showing his face basically because, so Dave Grohl said, he looked bad, grey. He just looked sad because he wasn't using. Right. So is that why, because it look, it's like they've got water mm-hmm. running across the, is that why they did it? Basically, so you can't see his face. Okay, because it's actually a really good video for that. <laughs> yeah. All right, okay. Objectively, I agree with what you said. Subjectively, this song's been ruined for me. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't get past it. It's unlike me, but there you go. Okay, um, so then we move on to Breed. Now, when I was doing my introduction to this album, I stated that it was originally called Imodium. Yes. So Breed was originally titled Imodium in tribute to the anti-laxative favoured by Tad Doyle of Seattle band Tad to combat diarrhoea whilst touring the UK with Nirvana. Oh, there you go then. So it is literally, yes. I've, got, I've got the shits. And... <laughs> All right then. Fucking hell, I love the bass line in this. Oh, and the, the, that distortion on it, it just gives it a real bite, doesn't it? You know, it's fucking ace. Do you know Do you know what the that I love about this song more than anything else? It constantly sounds like the whole thing's about to fall apart, but it doesn't. Mm. And I love that about it. It makes it such an exciting, urgent song because there's that feeling that Everything's about to crash in around you, but it doesn't happen. And the way it goes absolutely off kilter in the middle eight, wow, brilliant. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 great. So structurally, this is so simple. It's not a criticism again, because we talked about the simplicity of Smells Like Teen Spirit and how great that is. But what you got, verse, chorus, repeat, instrumental, chorus, boom. What else do you need? Get in. Exactly. So then we move on to um, lithium. Not because we um, have any particular... <laughs> we've exhausted the emodium supplies. Yeah, so we've moved on to lithium to deal with our um, mental angst. <laughs> Try and balance ourselves out. So can I just say to start with, sorry, before you before you go into the detail of the song, 
if Chris Novoselic was concerned that Smells Like Teen Spirit was a bit too Pixies, fucking hell. <laughs> this is the most directly Pixies-inspired track on this album. This is your clock Because Smells Like Teen Spirit, you've got the overproduction throughout. Mm-hmm. Overproduction's harsh. It sounds like I'm being critical. Massive production. This is classic. Quiet verse, loud chorus. Quiet verse, loud chorus. Come on, Chris. <laughs> this is the one to get worried about, surely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I fucking love this. It's fucking brilliant. That's why. And it, and it, this is so. I'm going to sort of contradict myself here. Having lamented, come as you are, for having been ruined for the number of shit teenage wannabe guitarists playing it badly. This is a staple live track for a teenage garage band. Uh, guilty, by the way. And it should be. Yeah, it's fucking great. So I love this song so much because, so yeah, it has that Pixies thing about it. It has the the simple verse with the raucous chorus. And do you know what? There's covers of this song that I absolutely adore. So I I love the Polyphonic Spree version of it. Uh, the Polyphonic Spree did a version of Lithium? Oh, yeah. Hello. Yeah, it's really good. I love the uh, Little Roy version of it. So there's a um, there's like a reggae album. Brian's lad. <laughs> <laughs> Kendall's lad. That's one for Succession fans. <laughs> right. So there is a um, a reggae album called Battle for Seattle. A great name for an album, by the way. Which is um, reggae covers of Nevermind. And there's one by Little Roy um, of Lithium, and it is brilliant. I absolutely adore it. So there are so many different versions of this. There's Booblade in a version. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even, like, because it's so good, I don't even think that Booblade could fuck it off. I I mean, he would, but... (laughs) I was going to say, I I beg to differ, he definitely could. Yeah. (laughs) So you talked about Chris Novoselic when we were going through Teen Spirit. This is a real showcase of his talent because he just wanders all over this. He never dominates. And actually, when you when you say that, it's like, well, the verse is really just really gentle drumming by Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic with that wandering bass line, and Kurt's lyrics. But it just complements and emphasises what's going on with the vocals because then even in the chorus when it all kicks in he's still going all over the place Mm -hmm. it's a great bass part this and it emphasizes exactly what you were saying earlier because of the characters because of what Kurt Cobain was and what Dave Grohl came on to be he's so overlooked yeah he was the perfect bassist for what this band was and he was really, really good. Yeah, that's the thing, is that sometimes, you know, you can talk about unfussy bass playing. That, and it sounds like you're slagging. Gwigsy. <laughs> so, no. So, absolutely not. I'm not talking about Gwigsy. <laughs> like, Chris Novoselic's bass work is unfussy. It's unshowy. But that's because it, it's highlighted when it needs to be. But it... yes. It keeps everything locked in when it needs to be as well. Yeah, fair. Can't believe you dragged Gwixy into this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Gwixy was unfussy. We can't, we can't deny that. 
<laughs> I don't even know the name of status quo's basis. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Lithium's really good. Yeah. Okay. Let us move on to Polly. So this is a, I mean, this is a fucking dark old song. So inspired by a gruesome story about an attack in Tacoma, Washington in the mid-80s, where recently paroled rapist Gerald Friend abducted a 14-year-old girl on her way home from a rock concert, suspending her via a pulley from the ceiling of his mobile home and then submitting her to a brutal physical and sexual assault. She only managed to escape with her life after he stopped for petrol and she jumped out of his truck. So Kurt tells the story from the perspective of the rapist, but certainly it, it's not sympathetic at all. No. So the narrative of it is really unsettling. It's a it's a very difficult to listen to. So yeah, like it, it's really well done. Sorry, I mean we've, we've, it's, <laughs> we've it's, completely it's, killed the tone. Yeah, of but it is like it's really dark and it. But it's you know it it is haunting. It's brilliantly done. It's a a fantastic piece of writing. So what I'll say, I wasn't aware of that until you just just read that. I have never been a huge fan of Polly. What I like about it, what I've always liked about it, is that it is a huge change of tone and of pace from the five you've heard before. And is a, is in that regard is a good end to side one or, or, or a good way to finish the first half of, of the album. So I was really interested when you were going through the background, something else I didn't know, to learn that this was not re-recorded from those original sessions because it has always sounded to me a bit like a demo that they chose not to finesse. Which it basically is. Exactly, exactly. Unlike a song we'll come to at the end, which is of a similar tone, but is much more in terms of the production within keeping with the rest of the album, if that makes sense. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know what more to say. I think it is a remarkable piece that I have never loved. So we shall leave the final word on it before we move on to no lesser figure than uh, Robert Zimmerman, better known as Bob Dylan. To describe it as uh, not British music, this is American. (laughs) (laughs) Dick. So he describes Kurt Cobain after listening to the song as that kid's got heart, which, Yeah. yeah, you know. Fair point. And uh, and it's nice to hear that um, Channing Tatum, or whatever his name is, gets uh, <laughs> gets his time on the album. He moved on from stripping. Uh, you see, I can't bring some levity into even such dark subjects as, as Polly. All right, anyway. Okay, so territorial pissings, um, something um, many animals do. Indeed. Well, and we start with uh, Chris Novoselic basically riffing off the uh, Turskies. Come on, people, now. (laughs) And this is very much like going back to their hardcore old days, really. Yeah. It's absolutely full-on punk anger. Yeah. It's a great song to put on when you're pissed off and you want everyone to know that you're pissed off. First thing I said is after you've just had Polly... You flip the disc over, or you, you know, whatever you carry on. Like fucking hell, what a way to pick yourself back up after what you've just listened to. Mm-hmm. I think the primal scream that you get from Kurt at the end, to me, encapsulates all the great things about this album. It is sheer 
unleashed balls to the wall fury and it's fucking great yeah it's pure hardcore and what i also love about it um in terms of the background for this well not necessarily background but um stuff related to this song so as they started to become massive the obviously they were booked on all kinds of shows and they wanted the hits they wanted it smelled like teen spirit come as you are lithium they wanted all these kind of things so when they had the option, they played Territorial Pissings to really fuck off the producers. So, um, for example, when they were on uh, Tonight with Jonathan Ross in December 91, they were supposed to play Lithium and instead played um, Territorial Pissings. <laughs> Kurt also insisted they played the song as well as Teen Spirit when they were guested on Saturday Night Live. The producers fumed when Nirvana trashed their gear at the end of the song and were apoplectic when uh, Chris began French kissing his bandmates on camera as the final credits rolled. <laughs> Fucking punk. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So, uh, so as we said a couple of weeks ago, this isn't a punk album, but there are punk elements, and here they are. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to say, Dave Grohl, ladies and gentlemen, fucking hell. Not a bad, not bad on the old skins. It's unbelievable how he manages to keep pace keep time throughout this like that right from the start that drum roll oh god glorious 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 tune love it yeah i i absolutely adored it unsurprisingly all right should we go on okay i want to drain you oh (laughs) you need not ask kevin (laughs) present that That's South Park reference. I like yeah. that. We've, we've, not, done, we've not done a lot of South Park. <laughs> Apologise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are non-sexual South Park references we can see. Not many. Uh, no, not many. Uh, what do you think about Drain You, Kev? Okay, so one of the really underrated elements of the album, and it's something that's not really talked about very much, the vocal harmonies are absolutely yeah. fucking amazing. And here, they really come through. Uh, they're unusual as well. Yeah. They sound slightly off kilter. They're not. They're really tuneful, but they sort of catch you unawares. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They sort of catch you off guard a bit. Really good. I agree. And, you know, the um, so Dave uh, Grohl described the song as the bohemian rhapsody of Nevermind for the 17 bars of freeform feedback and abstract sounds. <laughs> so that's really interesting. So I've said I really like that breakdown in the and the build back up in the middle of the song. Even if it does sound a bit like a teenage angst cover of Flash, <laughs> a song which you've already <laughs> referenced on this part. I like this a lot. Yeah, and so the song as well is it's very Nirvana in that it's it's a love song, but it's like it's not a traditional boy meets girl kind of this is about meeting someone and them I don't know, draining the life force out of you. Yes. you leaving you as a hollowed out husk of a person, you know. Do you think it's about anyone in particular? So it's not about who you <laughs> About a uh, someone who might be litigious, it is said to be uh, more likely to be inspired by his brief, intense relationship with Toby Vale. Okay, I don't know who that is. 
a a woman that he met. <laughs> I, I don't know who she is. <laughs> there you go. That's fair. I, I mean, that's I, probably indisputable. <laughs> yes, it's, it's undisputable. I could have googled her name, but I just I couldn't be asked. <laughs> exactly. Why bother? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a lot to say about this. Uh, it's quite good. Okay. But no, no, that's harsh. It's good. I like it. Okay, so we move on to Lounge Act. So, unfortunately, for, well, for Tim's editing purposes, <laughs> this song is written about Kurt's broken relationship with Toby Vale. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? So, I have, I have now Googled. So, she was a central figure in the Riot Girl scene was a founding member of Bikini Kill and also coined the spelling of girl. So the G double R L. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So yes, quite an influential uh, person. But apparently she uh, drained him of his life force. Well, indeed. So an an early version of the song contained the line I hate you because you are so much like me. In an unsent letter to Toby, Kurt vented, I don't write songs about you except lounge acts, which I do not play except when my wife is not around. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit creepy in many, many mm-hmm. ways. What do you think? I, I like it. I have nothing particular to say about it. It's perfectly good. Yeah. It's got a good tempo to it. It's not massively memorable. Yeah, I agree. I, I like the octave shift for the last verse mm-hmm. i think it gives it more emotion i think it it gives a good contrast to the way it starts it's good but yeah it's not remarkable so let's move on we move on to stay away what do you think i feel about this i imagine that you think this is overlong overly elaborate <laughs> <laughs> i guess you quite like this i fucking adore this <laughs> it's br- it's got a brilliant opening it's so exciting I bet this absolutely went off when it was live. Yes. And the rhythm section comes through just absolutely brilliantly here. Uh, Indeed. So I have said a few words about this. It's simple. It's punky. It's Pixies. It's good. (laughs) Yeah. Punky and Pixies, that's right in my (laughs) wheelhouse. Indeed. So, something I, I, I meant to say when we were going through Lounge Act, but it, it's possibly applicable here as well. This album, just as we said about 10, has an issue with track ordering. This album is top-heavy. If you are coming to this album now, if you've never heard the whole album before, mm-hmm. but you know the big songs, they're all on side one. And by the time you get past track seven, there is nothing of that furiosity. There's loads of really good stuff to get into. This one in particular, this album's top heavy, just as 10 was. Yeah, it is top heavy. Um, we'll get in. <laughs> I'm not going to say no, no, anything no, more no, about no. that. No, no, no. Okay. That's, again, that would have made more sense where I was saying that after we go through Lounge Act, because actually, this is as close as you get after Territorial Pissings to that to that absolute fire yeah but it's not at that level anyway that's I, that, I, it's good it's good i mm-hmm. like it okay so on a plane okay so i'm i'm going to hold hold back and i'm just going to ask you what you what you think of it i really like on a plane i, I, I so first thing i say is i think it's probably 
the closest thing on this album to what we would hear on In Utero a couple of years later. I think the way that, and I'm talking again beyond this album, I think the way that they transposed this to an acoustic song for the Unplugged oh, God, yeah. was incredible. I adore the version that's on the Unplugged session. I really like On A Plane. And I love the way it ends with everything apart from the backing vocal. Again, the vocal harmonies we've talked about fading out because it's a great way to lead us into the closer yeah, it's. I also think, and again, I apologise to to any Nirvana purist. It has that pop sensibility to it. Uh, it's a good song. I like it a lot. Okay, so I completely agree with you. <laughs> it's what I what I, the reason I held back is because what I wanted to say is it. This is exemplary of how good they were, mm. because essentially it's. This would be a perfectly perfunctory average song by another trio. Yep. But because they are so good, because everyone is so talented, it becomes massively elevated Mm -hmm. through the harmonies, through the rhythm section, through Kurt's vocal performance. It's, It's because they are so good. I agree. And I can't add anything more profound to what you've just said. So... Okay, and so we, I mean, te- well, depends which version of the album you have. This is the closer. So really, it's the closer. So something in the way. The cello line was Butch Vig's idea to evoke the ominous vibe of I Am The Walrus, interestingly. Okay. And the cellist, Kurt Canning, had nothing to do with Chad, uh, husband of L7's uh, D. Placus, struggled to match uh, Kurt's out-of-tune guitar, and it gives it a out of kilter yep. thing that's kind of a bit creepy, a bit unsettling, it, which which runs throughout the song. Yeah, I think this is gorgeous, and maybe gorgeous isn't the right word. It's very funereal, <sighs> but not not in a. It's funereal in a kind of um, to, to sound a bit wanky, a fan fan de siècle, like yeah, an end yeah, yeah, end yeah, of an yeah, era. Yes. Absolutely, it is. It is an elegy to something. Oh, very nice, yeah. And it's beautiful. Yes, it is. After everything you've gone through, with the furiosity, the urgency, the angst, the emotion, to bring everything down—not just a notch, but fucking—you know—you are turning things right down here, and yet still have that rawness. You've still got double tracking and the vocals mm-hmm. in the chorus, which I I love. The delicacy of the vocal, the subtlety of the acoustic guitar, the off-kilter, as you said, sound that the cello provides. It's mesmerising, this. Mm-hmm. It, it is. It's it's transfixing. I prefer mesmerising. But... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, th- the thing is, like... It's a funny old end. To, like, think how you started and think how you end. But yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't feel out of place. You've been on a journey with the with the album, and it yeah, yeah it absolutely works. I, I agree entirely. Again, I, I can't say anything more. I love it. Okay, so 
some people may now wonder why we are finishing with something in the way and instead we're not doing Endless Nameless. It's because on the original pressing, um, Endless Nameless was was left off. Yeah. And we always go with the original pressing. Now, exactly. it was included on Kurt's insistence, but we are nothing if not pedantic at Album Clash. So we go with the original pressing. Absolutely right. There we go. Okay, so... I'm going to go through a some of the reviews. Yes, what did the reviews say? So fir- firstly, initially Geffen didn't really push it. So the they targeted music publications and magazines in the Seattle area, and at first it didn't get many reviews, and it was largely ignored initially. However, after Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, it got the airplay, and everyone really wanted to review the album after that. <laughs> And they were glowing. So uh, Karen Shermer of the New York Times wrote, with Nevermind Nirvana has certainly succeeded. There are enough intriguing textures, mood shifts, instrumental snippets and inventive wordplays to provide for hours of entertainment. Nevermind is more sophisticated and carefully produced than anything peer bands like Dinosaur Jr. and Mudhoney have yet offered. Agreed. Although, I, I, and I, it's a nice way to remind me of the existence of Mudhoney. <laughs> So, concluding his enthusiastic review for Melody Maker, Everett True wrote that when Nirvana released Bleach all those years ago, the more sussed among us. I mean, that's such a wanky... Um, like, it wouldn't surprise me if Chris Gow came out with that. It's like, I knew they were going to be good when that came out. Figured that they had the potential to make an album that would blow every other contender away. My God, have they proved us right. Select compared the band to Jane's Addiction, Sonic Youth, and the Pixies, stating the album proves that Nirvana truly belong in such high company. Now, considering, I mean, I mean two out of three ain't bad. It's what I'll say to that because they are fuck all like Jane's Addiction. Can you imagine what Kurt Cobain would have thought about being compared to Dave Navarro? Well, indeed. <laughs> but yeah, like they were all very popular, apart from so Boston Globe. Uh, Steve Morse wrote, Most of Nevermind is packed with generic punk pop that have been done by countless acts from Iggy Pop to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and added, The band has little or nothing to say, settling for moronic ramblings by singer lyricist Cobain. Well, right, fine, okay. So, there is one reviewer that I've not mentioned. I believe he did review it. He did review it. Do you have it, or would you like me to read it? It's always your prerogative to to bring up Nobby McGee. So, we learned when we went through 10 two weeks ago that uh, Nobby was no fan of the Seattle grunge scene in August of 1991. So, I imagine that the passage of time of 30 whole days (laughs) would have done little to change his mood. Let's see, shall we? (laughs) So, Writing in the Village Voice, Robert Criscow wrote, After years of hair-flailing sludge that achieved occasional song form on singles no normal person ever heard, Seattle finally produces some proper post-punk, aptly described by resident genius Kurt Cobain. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, bad solo. This is hard rock as the term was understood before metal moved in. The kind of loud, slovenly, tuneful music you think no one will ever work a change on again until the next time it happens, whereupon you wonder why there isn't loads more. It seems so simple. I mean, 
it's a lot shorter than his review of 10, so mm-hmm. it's got that going for it. I mean, that's the only thing it's got going for it. I mean, it's not, in some ways, he's not wrong in what he says about the album. It's just insufferably him. It is insufferably him, and as I said, it took him less than a month to completely change his views about the Seattle scene because here comes a guy that wears t shirts and cardigans. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Nobby McGee, Robert Criscow, <sighs> never change. So I suppose, really, it's uh, for me to go into legacy. Oy, not much to say about the legacy of Nirvana, and all cheery, I imagine. Well, I mean, I don't really need to go into what happened with, with Kurt or no. Dave Grohl. So I want to talk about legacy in a different way. Okay. So without question, it led to a boom in alt music in America, without question. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we talked about Pearl Jam, and you you think of the contemporaries that either came up in the, in the interim period or potentially rode the co- the coattails. So Soundgarden, uh, Automatic for the People is is this year. It's fucking great as well, let's say. Yeah, which is a great album. Um, Smashing Pumpkins, you know, there's Sonic Youth, there's loads of bands that kind of, the space has been created by the success of Nirvana. And that kind of image becomes cool again. So I'm really glad that you've mentioned some of those bands. Smashing Pumpkins you talked about, so Gish was their debut album that came out this year, but Siamese Dream, 93, produced by Butch Vig, one of my favourite albums, I fucking love it. They absolutely, quite directly, can attribute their success to the success of Nevermind and of No Nirvana. And I don't think even Billy Corgan would argue with that. (laughs) But the point I wanted to make was bands like Sonic Youth, R.E.M. even, as you said, automatic for the people with this year. Monster followed on not long after, and mm-hmm. the sound of Monster is undoubtedly influenced by the sound of Nevermind. But you know, bands like Sonic Youth, who had been well, whole even you know, let's not be let's yeah, not beat know. around the bush here, who were on the scene, who had an underground following, suddenly found that there was a market for what they'd been doing, and. That is a big part of the legacy of Nirvana, a big part of the legacy of Nevermind. It's not just the bands who became established after its release, like Smashing Pumpkins, like Soundgarden. It's the bands who had been around for a little bit, who either had increased success afterwards or who found success where they hadn't been before. It widened the door for them. Yeah. And well, there's, there's, I mean, there's so much to talk about, in, and like this is not talking about Nirvana and in utero or anything like that, because let's face it, you fucking should know this kind of stuff if you're listening to us. So, so Billboard writer William Goodman lords the album, particularly in comparison to the music and image of hair metal acts. He said the chest beating, coat blowing, women objectifying macho rock star of the 80s. Cobain popularised or reinvigorated the image of the sensitive artist, the pro-feminism, anti-authoritarian, smart Alec Punk with a sweet smile and a gentle soul. He brought the intelligence back into music, which had disappeared during that hair metal period. That, and I'm going to, yeah, I am going to hit on Motley Crue again because they are, for me, the absolute prototype of the stupid fucking mid-80s thick hair metal bands that stood for nothing. 
Well, I would go even for you're you're right. But there was it so there was quite famous beef between Kurt Cobain and Axl Rose, mm-hmm. for example. So it was it was a general railing, and I like Guns and Roses a lot. Okay, but there was a general railing against that overblown, overproduced, certainly as you get to use your illusion, sort of guys, <laughs> rock that came out of the eighties and into the early nineties. And as you said, things that stood for nothing, things that stood for nothing other than girls partying mm-hmm. and you know debauchery. Yeah, the it talks. It's I mean we you know we've talked about various different themes on both of these albums that have greater import, a greater depth than anything you can imagine Motley Crue ever fucking talking about. <laughs> I really have got a problem with Motley Crue because they're fucking dreadful. Um, I, I, I probably only know one Motley Crue song. They they don't even register. No, but my... it's, it's everything. They represent everything that I despise about particularly that 80s scene. Um, Agreed. And as well, um, like so, there's two other points I want to make before we will. Uh, I, w- I will bring this to a close because I understand that I am going on quite a bit. But Brazilian cultural studies academic Moises Pinto stated that he was struck by Nevermind, saying, "I thought this is perfect. It sounds like a bright synthesis of noise and pop music." He also said that the impact on Nirvana as well as MTV during the time of Nevermind caused a new youth who listens to the same music and dressed similarly. There was a cultural homogeneity that had probably never experienced before, and I think there's a truth to that. The grunge became a worldwide phenomenon. Whereas you can talk about subcultures in, you know, British subcultures around mods, mods and rockers and that kind of thing that has has some influence around the world, but not to the same extent. And like some of the American trends previously, they don't have the same impact because MTV kind of exported the image and the, the look. So, you know, the plaid shirt with the t-shirt underneath, which me and Tim are both prone to wearing <laughs> I was now. Say, you know, thirty years later, I'm still dressing exactly. Like that. You know, because that culture was inculcated across the world. I'll go further. Without grunge and the impact it had in returning rock music, in particular, to working class, average Joe, young people. For the first time, arguably since Springsteen and the Smiths in the UK, let's ignore what Morrissey has gone on to become. Massive racist. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We've just talked about how overblown and pretentious and you know all that shit with 80s music. Returning rock music to its working class roots, without that, you don't get the Britpop movement, regardless of how that travelled across borders. You don't get it without this. So it's interest. So that was to be my second point, was okay. that you directly do not get Britpop without grunge because Britpop was a it's a reaction to it. It was a reaction. It was a kick yeah. against it because it is very much a. Amazingly, there's only there's four years between me and my eldest sister, and it is very much a generational gap between yes, the two. It is. So for her, that grunge was this huge thing, and she was banging to Pearl Jam and Nirvana and all these other different bands. But for me, those were my bands. Mm. 
Blur, Oasis, Pulp, they were my bands. Yeah. And that that was a very much a reaction to the Americanization of British culture because of how successful and the homogenous nature of grunge culture that had yep. dominated teenage and youth culture after the release of Nevermind. Yes, agreed. But I think part of that reaction to it wasn't just we're keeping the British end up, <laughs> for want of a better phrase. It was we've seen here that a group of, of working class lads from the Pacific Northwest, an unremarkable at the time city in, in, in the US. Well, you can't get to sleep. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Thank you. They can connect with a, a, an audience in a way that no artist had done in that way for, for, for a number of years. Anyway, I think your suedes, your pulps, your blurs saw that and said, not only is it, well, hang on, we are going to rail against the Americanization of British culture. We're going to take the template of how they've done that and we're going to make it relatable to... British kids mm-hmm. and that is as much a part of the legacy of Nevermind as anything else. So I think the final point I'm going to make is a quote from from their biographer uh, Michael Azarad. So Nevermind came along at exactly the right time. This was music by for and about a whole new group of young people who had been overlooked ignored or condescended to. I just said that but it's it's spot on yeah absolutely okay so before we get into the the big very very fucking difficult element of um the scores tim what's your best song what's your worst song all right i'm gonna do my best song first because it's obvious it's in bloom uh it's fucking brilliant it's magnificent it's huge i adore it okay my worst song and i am once again opening myself up to vitriol from people who care about these things. I'm sorry to come as you are. Okay, I understand. That is me being entirely subjective. It's been ruined for me, and I, to this day, struggle to listen to it. So there you go. How about you? Fair enough. Um, Okay, it's quite hard to do a worse song. I'm going to come down on Polly. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell! (laughs) And I don't... It's it's not it's not that it's a bad song. It's it's a great song. It's just the it's a hard it's listen. A bit too cheery for you. Yeah, it's a, it's hard listen. It is a hard listen. It is. Oh, fuck best song. Christ. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot on here. I want to bring attention to not just the obvious ones. Something in the way on a plane. Drain you as well. Territorial pissing. Like there's loads of really good stuff. But I'm going to come down on lithium because it's fucking great. It is fucking great. On Polly, it's 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 a hard listen. There is something, and as I said at the time, it sounds like a demo that was carried forward because that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And in that, it's somewhat drowned out by everything else on the album. And maybe this is why I'm not as keen on it. Not just because the subject matter is difficult and it's a hard listen. It's maybe that it doesn't have the doesn't have the polish, really. Mm, exactly. Of it, all the stuff on the album. 
I think if you recorded Polly in the way that they did something in the way, I think it would be an incredibly haunting, haunting song. Yes, it would. But they didn't. But they so didn't. So that's your choice. Uh, I'm stalling Kev because I still ain't got any fucking idea. And, and the problem is, it's I don't even have the benefit of being able to stall whilst you talk through your review of 10 because it's my pick. So it's you to start. I have to go first. And this is so hard. Oh, right, 10 by Pearl Jam. I love it. I love the way it starts. It punches you in the gut right from the off. It takes it up. With the second track, you've got, as I said at the time, if you just want to rock out to something, you've got it all here. But there's so much more depth lyrically to this album as well. I'm amazed that the band was so negative about how the album sounds. Because to me, it's great. Yeah, I have to say they they remastered it and it sounds even better. But, you know, I've got a vinyl version of this and it's just glorious. I love it. It's huge. As I said a number of times as we were going through the album a couple of weeks ago, I think it provides a really good bridge between what rock music had been over the five years leading up to this album and rock one what rock music was about to become. Oh, God. Even Flow, Alive, Black, Jeremy. Great songs. They're on the first half of the album. Second half's good, but there's a real issue with track ordering on this album, which counts against it. I'm going 8 out of 10. If I was to go purely with my heart, I'd probably go higher than 8 out of 10, because I love this album. Mm-hmm. Objectively, it's flawed, but it's still really strong. So I'm going 8 out of 10. Okay. How about you? So, I am in a very similar position to you. We we start with an absolute assault. It's it's an incredibly strong first half of the album. So, why go as you said, black, even flow, alive, once Jeremy. That's a hell of a first side to an album. There's so much pathos, there's so much angst, there's so much emotion, just depth of feeling. Musically, it's incredibly dense and complex, but in a very accessible way. It's performed brilliantly. So there's so much going on. And I do think it works. It does work as a piece. The second half does feel like the catharsis. You have all that tension built up in the first in the first side that sort of reaches his apogee in Jeremy, where you end with like kind of Eddie Vedder's vocals are akin to him rocking back and forth in a primal scream after everything that's happened. But the second half is not as strong. There are there are really good elements about it, and there's lots of stuff that I enjoy about it. And I think it's an album that I have listened to many many times. But listening to it this time, the second half is not as strong as the first half, so it's definitely not a ten. No, I come down on it with a seven and a half. I think it's incredibly strong, but it does drop off quite significantly. Yeah. Okay. 
I think you've maybe gone a little bit low. Well, because I went a little bit higher, but we're pretty close. Yeah, where we've gone. Let's be honest. I could have gone eight. I could have gone eight, and I'm sure you could have gone seven and a half. It's yeah. It's not not much in it, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to give it more. Yeah, but I can't. All right. So fifteen and a half is what we've given ten. Now I do have time to consider what I'm going to say next. So <laughs> uh, over to you to score. Never mind. So when we're talking about ten, I said. First half of the album is one of the strongest um, starts to an album that we've come across when doing this. And then we listen to um, Nevermind. <laughs> and the first five songs are Smell Like Teen Spirit, In Bloom, Come As You Are, Breed, Lithium. That's not a bad fucking run at all. <laughs> then you've got Polly, which is difficult to listen is difficult to listen to, but it has it has merits to it. Territorial pissings, which I have a lovely time with. You know, there's not much that's weak on the album. The only thing I think I think you're right is that there are some issues with track ordering, but it is a relentless bloody piece of music. There's so much going on, and it's a fucking three piece. It's a three piece making, and I know double tracking and all that. Making that sound, fuck me. I wish I'd had the opportunity to see him live. Like, if I'd got to see Stay Away live, I bet that was fucking amazing. (laughs) But, um, or Territorial Pissings for that matter. Um, It's brilliant. I think there's so much, again, I'm going to talk about pathos and angst. You know, there is a reason that Kurt Cobain is talked about as the voice of a generation because he does nail, nail it completely. I am desperately flapping round with flowery phrases because I'm not. <sighs> you got you got to say a number, mate. Got to say a number. Nine. Nine out of ten. Nine, yeah. Okay. So already ten is up against it with only fifteen and a half. So am I going to give? Never mind. Six and a half or less. Absolutely no fucking chance. I might do. You're not. <laughs> uh, all right. Kurt Cobain was the voice of a generation. As much for his style as for his lyrics. Because we talked about how well Eddie Vedder conveys angst, pathos, emotion, desperation, anguish, whatever you want to say. Fucking Kurt Cobain takes that and pff, elevates it. So there's that. There's a rawness to Nevermind, which hadn't been heard since... Since maybe Iggy. Or Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols, Clash, that kind of period. Yeah, that's what, exactly, exactly. It has issues with pacing. It has issues with track ordering. But they're in the noise. Yeah, the first five tracks are mind-blowing. Even the weaker tracks, they're weak because of the strength of the things that are that they are amongst, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 10 ends quite dis- disappointingly is too harsh. I, I like release, but it's not something in the way. Fucking hell. I just, that is such an arresting closer to an album. If you'd asked me at the start of these recordings, which album I was going to pick as the best, I would have said it's going to be a tough call, but probably 10. And actually... I'm going to agree with Kevin. Never mind, gets nine out of ten. Because the other point is that 
as I have said many times on Album Clash, I always take into account cultural significance, impact, legacy, all that. And undeniably, as good as 10 is, it did not have the impact that Nevermind did. Nevermind gets 9 out of 10, and an 18 out of 20 is a clear winner of this Album Clash. <laughs> I'm a bit gutted. It's, it's the right decision, though. It is, but at the same time, I will say this. If I'm choosing which record to put on and I've got those two in my hands, I'm probably going to pick 10 more often than I'm going to pick Nevermind. But I'm not just doing this on personal preference. No. Objectively, Nevermind is the deserved winner. So there you go. Okay. So that's it. Nevermind gets 18 out of 20, which comfortably beats 10, which gets 15 and a half, which is a decent score. And 10's a really good album. God, I'm sorry, Eddie. Sorry, Stone. I'm sorry, guys. It just you—you you were always on a loser. I'm you—you so, you know. Yeah, it was that. It was always going to be tricky. Yeah, but we're done. There you go. Congratulations to Nirvana. Congratulations to Kurt and the boys. You've won. Kev, what's the next stop on our road trip? Okay, so our last clash took us to Seattle to the voice of a of a generation, a chronicler of. Teenage angst and anger and alienation. So we will cross the Atlantic. Oh. And we will go to two chroniclers of Northern City Dwelling. We will go to two chroniclers of working class life. We will go to two chroniclers who are from the city of Sheffield. Go on. And we will do the albums that broke both of these bands right into the mainstream. So, Tim, you will be taking us through 1995's Different Class. Get in! I'm really excited. My voice has gone up several octaves. And following that, I will take us through 2006, Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not, by Arctic Monkeys. Oh, I thought it was going to be Shed 7. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Brilliant. I think that, that that is a clash which will very much, as I say, chroniclers of northern life. Jesus Christ. I mean, we've just had a tough clash. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not going to get any easier. Wow. Okay. I mean, we have spoken multiple times, both on the pod and off the pod, about how much we've wanted to do some Arctic Monkeys and do some Pulp. And what better way to do both of those bands than to pit them against each other? Exactly. Um, this is this is a real generational clash as well. Well, almost. Well, eleven years between between the mm. two. Uh, Pulp were older, like they'd had albums before, but it was very much what launched them into the mainstream. Whereas, obviously, it's the Arctic Monkeys' debut album, but both of them very much captured the zeitgeist. Absolutely. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I am looking forward to that. Right, before that, however, Kevin, over to you. Okay, so I could very much continue on our Twitter, Elon Musk uh, bashing Roots, but I'm not going to do that. I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunity to continue to do that over the coming weeks and months. Well, he he may well crash the entire platform by then, but you know, 
I could bring up the fact that the leader of the execrable um, England band um, is in the pay of Qatar. Uh, not just the leader, but three of his fellow bandmates. But that's not what I'm going to bring your attention to. Okay. I'm going to bring your attention to the QPR Kissgate. Uh, you have completely lost me, so this okay. is news to me as well. So... A QPR fan who attended their game, their away game... Uh, for, for our non-English listeners, please explain. Okay. QPR are a team in the championship known as Queen's Park Rangers. They played an away game at um, Norwich City earlier this week. One of their fans who was in the away crowd put out a tweet uh, stating basically that his girlfriend was uh, kissing a 6-foot 18-year-old and wanted um, footage to be able to prove it. This is this is now at half at half time. This has now become known as Kissgate, and multiple people have unsurprisingly ripped the piss out of this fella, who has then um, come out with a statement uh, written as though he was a public figure, um, written on the notes app. <laughs> Basically saying he was drunk, he mistook his girlfriend talking to just a man (laughs) um, whilst he was drunk um, for her getting off with someone and then blaming the rest of QPR Twitter for ripping the piss out of him. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he doubled down on it. So, yeah, you can check out the hashtag Kissgate um, if you want more on that. Will do. (laughs) But whilst on Twitter, you can check out our excellent uh, Twitter content at Clash Album. If you like carefully curated quality content, um, you can go to our Insta at Clash Album. Or if you are also a six foot eighteen year old who fancies getting off with someone at <laughs> half time, you can uh, send a message to Tim at Clash Album at <laughs> gmail dot com. We don't have to wait till half time, Kev. We can do it anytime <laughs> you want. That's my promise to you, listeners. As long as you're six foot. <laughs> no shorties for Tim. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, no, that's not true. That's unfair, Kevin. I am uh, um, I am an equal opportunist uh, in my sexual... <laughs> I'm not going to... No, no, I'm finishing that. Uh, dear me. Right. Very good. Thank you very much for listening. I mean, I'm going to say it. You never do it. Keep in touch. Tell your friends about this. Uh, like, subscribe. I mean, to be fair, you dedicated listeners, you know, it's it always nice to see when a new episode comes out, the listen account, the, the play count tick up. Uh, so thank you guys so much. We love you dearly. We'd be very pleased if you bring your friends and family along for the ride. Maybe you've tried to do so, and actually they think... This is shit, and I love you and respect you a bit less now for trying to introduce me to this. If so, we apologise, but we're not going to change our ways. Or, you know, just, like, get a burner account and <laughs> just do Listen loads twice. of listens on that. Yeah, that's a good shout, actually. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Just just boost, boost our listens. That'd be sound. I, I, even rage clicks. Rage clicks count just as much as the proper ones. <laughs> if you're a proper right-wing balland, then, um, yeah, just hate listen to us. Exactly. Like we can, we can, we can do the most wokiest um, thing possible. That we just, can go we can, woker. Yes, we can. We can descend into wokey hole. <laughs> uh, brilliant stuff. Okay, it's time to go because uh, I need to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Thank you very, very much for listening, guys. Just to remind, in a couple of weeks, our next episode will be me taking us through Pulp's different class from 1995. That will be going up against... 2006's Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not by Arctic Monkeys. Boom. Until then, however, I've been Tim. Thank you for listening. I've been Kev. Am I right about you listening? <laughs> it's not asked. Yeah. Uh, all right. We'll see you soon, guys. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Bye.